Well, good morning. In case you're wondering, it is not t-shirt weather. I'm a little chilly up here. I wish I had a sweatshirt right about now, but I don't. We'll get through this tough crowd this morning. There we go. Loosen up a little bit. Well, good morning again. We're glad you're with us today. My name is Tommy Moore. I'm the Director of Teaching and Ministry here at Mercy House. If this is your first time here, I want to give you a very warm welcome. I'm really glad that you're here worshiping with us this morning. So we're back after a one-part sermon series for the book of Obadiah, so thank you, Jake, uh, for, for leading us through that. We're back on our sermon series of Long Road Home, which is covering the 15 Songs of Ascents, which are Psalms 120 to 134. And there's obviously a lot that's been covered. I can't do a full recap of everything that's there, so I do encourage you, uh, if you want to catch up, you can check out the podcast, you can go to our website, you can check out our live stream on Facebook. There's lots of ways for you to catch up on some of the content that you've missed through the Songs of Ascents. So this morning, we're in Psalm 129. And as you look at Psalm 129, what you see is a reflection on the affliction and the suffering of Israel, who are people of, of God. And it, it's a unique psalm where we get to see into the heads and the hearts of people who have experienced great suffering and how they view God in that suffering and, and what their perspective of suffering is. And so if you're here this morning and you've seen some affliction in your life, if you're actively experiencing hardship right now, or, or maybe some persecution, maybe you just feel downtrodden, you feel like you've been beaten up, you're against the ropes, you're at the end of your rope, if you're suffering this morning, I want you to buckle up because this sermon, this text is for you. Others of us, if we may not be in a place of, of affliction right now, and so let's praise God. And so I want to encourage you, if you're one of those people, to, to use this time to prepare yourself for the times of challenge and hardship and strife that are to come, because they will. And perhaps even more importantly, listen to see how you can support and love your brothers and sisters and also everyone you come into contact with who might be suffering right now. So let's jump right in, starting with verse 1, Psalm 129. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back, they made long their furrows. The Psalter follows a form in these opening verses that we've seen earlier in Psalm 124. It, it includes an invitation for God's people to repeat these words in song, and it encourages them to sing along. And now this is really important because it communicates the need and the value for Israel to engage personally with these truths, not just to hear them, kind of enjoy a nice concert uh, and have it like wash over them and then they just move on with their lives. No, the, the psalmist literally stops mid-verse, right? And what he says is, to the effect of saying, now sing it with me, Israel. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. As the Psalter leads the people in singing this song, he's also shepherding them, and he's pastoring them, and he's challenging them to engage with the fact that they, both collectively and individually, have experienced affliction and suffering. But he also places that affliction and suffering in the right context for them. See, what's important to pull from these verses is the presence of suffering for God's people, but also the outcome of that suffering. So first, the presence of suffering for God's people. And what we see as we follow the story of Israel through the Old Testament is the reality that Israel is a nation that is born out of suffering 
and a nation which experienced continual suffering and hardship for as long as they've been a people group. See here, Israel is not being overly dramatic when they say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. There's truth to this. You look at verse, uh, this verse from Hosea chapter 11, and this is God speaking. He's saying, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So let me connect some of the dots for you. See, God is reflecting on his love for Israel, and he connects the nation's birth and its youth as being the time that they were in Egypt. And if you remember how we started this whole sermon series, we actually looked at God's miraculous and his powerful rescue of the Hebrew people from the oppressive slavery and the suffering that they experienced in Egypt, which was a foundational moment in Israel's formation as God's people. And it wasn't just their birth as a nation, which was met with adversity, Israel did not just live in green pastures afterward and and just knowing peace and tranquility for the rest of their days after this. They weren't just teleported from Egypt all the way to the promised land, no. So if you read the book of Exodus and 1 and 2 Kings and and 1 and 2 Samuel, honestly, any history book at all, what you'll see is that the Jewish people of Israel have experienced incredible hardships, incredible afflictions for millennia. And Bible scholar David Guzik, he speaks of the afflictions of Israel. He says, the Egyptians, the Canaanites, the Philistines, the Syrians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Roman Catholics, the kings of Europe, the Muslims, the Tsars, the Nazis, all have done their best to wipe out the Jews. James Montgomery Boyce, a theologian, he also adds, the Jews are the longest enduring distinct ethnic people on the planet. They have been slandered, hated, persecuted, expelled, pursued, murdered throughout their long existence, but they have survived intact. See, the presence of affliction and suffering and hardships for the people of Israel was as regular as eating food and breathing air. It would be futile to try to avoid it. It would be pointless to try to ignore it. And so one of the ways that we see Israel dealing with their affliction is by embracing it. And that's what's being done right here. They're not shooing it away. They're not hiding it off into a closet. They're not like pretending like nothing happened. They're acknowledging it together as a community. But they're not doing it for the reason that you might think. See, this is not some sort of therapeutic exercise to simply vent or just to process what they've been through. And this is not wallowing in self-pity or taking like a bath in all their sadness because it feels cathartic for them. No, Israel is singing about it because they've seen over and over again, over again the outcome of their affliction. Look again at verse 3. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. You see, the story of Israel's affliction is not one of defeat, but actually of confidence. And the tone of this song is not a sad, somber, depressing tune. It's actually a fight song. That helps them remember this truth, that though they've been beaten down and bruised, though they've been persecuted and have suffered by the hands of malicious and evil people, and though they've experienced great loss, have cried bitter tears, they are still standing. They they haven't been defeated. Their oppressors haven't prevailed against them. They're still alive and kicking. They're still fighting the good fight. And they're, they're still singing for crying out loud. See, this is the legacy of Israel. They they wore it confidently. It wasn't a soft spot that they hid from and never talked about, but it was a significant ingredient in their formation as God's people. It produced in them great resolve and great grit. And Mercy House, if you're a Christian today, this is your legacy as well. 
We Christians, we have been grafted into the family of God, which he established in the people of Israel. We've been adopted into this long lineage of resiliency in the face of brutal hardships and suffering. Suffering was not something that just existed for God's people in the Old Testament. Then it gave way to sunny skies and smooth sailing in the New Testament. And no one exudes this better than the Apostle Paul. See, this was a guy who was of Jewish heritage. He was ethnically Hebrew, but he was also a Christian. And so he kind of straddled the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And this is a man who was literally shipwrecked. Like, this guy had rocks pelted at his head until people thought that he was dead. He was in prison multiple times. And so listen, this is a guy who knows affliction. Listen to how he speaks of affliction and persecution. And hear how similar of a tune it is to this psalm. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Man, what a rallying cry, right? It's oozing with confidence and with grit. And Paul exuded this. It wasn't a confidence in himself. Historically, Paul himself is like a bald little man. He's of small stature. He wasn't very eloquent in the words that he used uh, as he was preaching the gospel, So don't picture like a Vin Diesel character, right, when you read the epistles of Paul. You want to picture someone like Danny DeVito, 4'7", balding, literally, look up some historical accounts of Paul. Nevertheless, the grit and the confidence was there. And Paul was a guy that, that, like this psalm is saying, you could not prevail against. So if you threw rocks at him and you beat him, he rejoiced in his sufferings. If you put him in jail, he would take that opportunity to preach the gospel to the guards and convert the whole prison and all of their families as well. If you threatened to kill him, he'd say, to die is gain, and he'd be pumped to go be with Jesus. And sure, he experienced suffering and persecution and hardships, but no one and nothing was able to prevail against Paul and his mission to make disciples and plant churches. This is not just Paul. Paul wasn't just some superhuman Christian with special powers and an unattainable outlook on suffering. The early church and the church today has suffered horrendous afflictions and persecutions since its youth. There are countless stories of disciples of Jesus who have been slandered, who have been beaten, who have been raped, who have been tortured, who have been murdered for what they believe. Missionaries who have willingly suffered heinous acts of violence and hate and who have responded only with grace and with love in order to make a way for the gospel to be preached. And then churches were birthed out of that. King Henry IV, also known as Henry the Great, he was a Christian and, and, and he was able to do a lot of good during his reign. He, he, regularized, he regularized state finance. He promoted agriculture. He eliminated corruption. He encouraged education. But even as a king... He was not without affliction or suffering, specifically in the form of enemies. There were 12 assassination attempts on his life, stemming from his beliefs and his faith. There was one day when he was feeling particularly discouraged and frustrated, which you would feel if there were 12 assassination attempts on your life. And his friend, the 16th century French reformer Theodore Beza, said to him, he said, Sire, it is the lot of the church of God to endure blows and to not inflict them. But may it please you to remember that the church is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. 
See, sometimes it feels like we're a little porcelain jar which is placed on the anvil of existence and the hammer of life and of Satan. It's just kind of looming overhead, threatening to come down and to crush us. And what Beza is reminding King Henry and us that in Christ, we are not fragile porcelains of jar, uh, uh, porcelain jars. We, we are an anvil. And anvils wear down and they break hammers that strike them. Mercy House, it is my hope and my prayer that that we would be a church that can walk with this level of confidence and grit in the face of affliction and suffering in our lives. Imagine how the world around us would be impacted if we had this grit. Imagine how others around us would be encouraged. Imagine how we could be used to, to build God's kingdom if we weren't afraid of pain or discomfort if it wasn't our natural reflex to just avoid hardship or difficulty or affliction. Because I think this is what we do. It's what I do. It's what I'm tempted to do. We live in a culture that emphasizes ease and comfort, where almost every advertisement is aiming to alleviate any and all discomforts. and They offer solutions for making life easier and more manageable. Everything appeals to our desires. It caters for our love of, of just convenience and ease. I don't want to just blame this cultural moment or the technology that we have today. This is a part of human nature. Most of us don't like pain, and some of us will do anything to avoid dealing with the hurt that we've experienced. We'll try to suppress it down. Any negative emotion, we just push it down. Maybe we hide from our feelings. Maybe we just distract ourselves from them or numb the pain that we've experienced. But here's here's the question that we, we need to ask. What does the suffering of God's people tell us about suffering? What does the suffering of God's people tell us about suffering? See, surely God is powerful enough to protect the nation of Israel and his church from suffering. Like, he can, in his power, exclude affliction from the experience of God's people. But he doesn't. He allows it. He almost allows an extra dose of it in many cases. So the question is, if God is God, And if he is simultaneously loving us and he wants what's best for us, but also he's allowing suffering, well, what does that tell us about suffering and hardships? I think one of the things that it shows us is that suffering and affliction are not ultimate evils. Suffering and pain are a result of the fall and the effects of sin, but we don't have to be allergic to it or run away from it when we see it. Hardships are used by God to refine his people. And that's what Israel embraced. They embraced it with song, and this is why Paul welcomed it himself. In Romans chapter 5, verse 3 through 5, he says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has, who has been given to us. Do you hear that? You seeing that? Paul here, he's writing marketing copy for suffering. He's advertising suffering. And what he's pitching is that we should all buy into suffering because suffering is productive for the people of God. It, means, it is the means by which God grows and matures and sanctifies his people. Look at this passage with me. Hopefully it's still up on the screen. Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings. Meaning, I'm not allergic to suffering or discomfort. Like, man, I sing and I'm filled with joy and thankfulness when I experience suffering. That's a wild concept. Why? 
because it produces endurance, meaning the more affliction we suffer, our tolerance for affliction and hardship increases. We become tougher and more resilient as we see just how far the limits of our faith in God can actually take us in it. And then it produces hope because as we see God being near and present in our suffering, we see that there's no limit to how far God can take us because we, he will never leave us or ever forsake us. And this is not an experience of gritting our teeth and meditating through our pain or repeating some sort of mantra in order to get us through it. No, it, it, it won't put us to shame by leaving us to realize that, that it's fake. But as we cling to God in our suffering, we experience deep, profound fellowship with him, which brings us peace and which brings us comfort. It's kind of like saying to an athlete, rejoice in the hard. Rejoice in the hard because hard is not bad. A difficulty and challenge are necessary ingredients for athletes to grow and to become more excellent as athletes. And so you rejoice when you're given a hard workout, knowing that it's increasing your strength, it's increasing your stamina, it's increasing your ability. To the student, rejoice in the challenge of school. Listen, if school is easy for you right now, you're wasting your time, your money, and, and you, like whatever you're doing school, like if, 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 if work at school is easy, then it's not challenging, it's not forcing you to grow. Difficult problems make you a better problem solver. And challenging tests, they force you to learn the material. To those in relationships, hard conversations deepen friendship and intimacy. And so we don't need to be afraid of conflict or some awkwardness. Like they are often the means by which we grow and mature, both as individuals, but also together as friends when we're willing to have those conversations. But how can we know? How can we know that our suffering is productive? Like this is a nice idea, and sure it says it here explicitly, but maybe Paul is just like a weird outlier who likes pain. Who, how can we be sure that suffering is not an ultimate evil that we ought to avoid as much as possible, especially if that's what our gut is telling us? And as we look back at the psalm, we see a pause in verse 4. It's the climax of the song. It's really the primary point of truth that connects what came previously and what will come after it. So verse 4 says, The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. What gives us confidence and grit in the face of affliction and suffering is not simply that it can be productive, but we have confidence and grit because of who uses it product productively on our behalf. And verse 4 points to God. The psalmist is directing the, the, the attention and the gaze of Israel beyond their suffering, beyond their pain, beyond their history of affliction and hardship, and he points it upward to the, to the one who rules and reigns over them as their God and as their king, their father. In Lama's class, where you walk through having a baby, they teach you lots of different methods for dealing with pain. They tell you one method is to focus on their breath your breathing. They say you take two short breaths and then like a little exhale. So you go, hee, hee, hoo, hee, hee, hoo, right? I remember these classes. And it wasn't me who'd be going through the pain, but I, I, I memorized all of these different techniques. And see, the psalmist is giving us a method of dealing with pain and suffering, and it isn't a breathing technique. And he's not saying, focus on your breathing. He's saying, let's focus on God and our suffering and our affliction, Israel. 
And here's why. As we read the Psalms, we see that glory and honor is constantly being given to God because God is the great preserver of Israel. So God gets this glory because it's not David's glory as their king. It's not him as a military tactician. It's not glory being given to the horses or the chariots or the swords or the shields. It's not due to the high walls and the surrounding city of Jerusalem that Israel exists. Like Israel exists, the people of God are still standing. The church has not been prevailed against because the mighty preserving power of God. And Mercy House, if you're suffering, if you're in pain, if, if you're in turmoil, in despair, in your affliction, look to God. He is your preserver. He will take care of you. And there's no one and nothing that will keep you and comfort you in your pain and in your suffering like God does. And so we look to him. How do we know this about God? How can we be sure? This is another one of those things that's really nice to hear, but how do we know? Well, look at verse four again. It says, the Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. The assurance that we have in God is our preserver is based on God's character. And notice how the psalmist draws our attention to God, not just in him in a general sense, but by highlighting a characteristic of who he is by pointing out this important truth that the Lord is righteous. Well, what does that mean? See, in the English language, the word righteousness and justice are two separate words, but in Hebrew, these two words are combined into one idea, tzedek. And it's also true in the New Testament Greek. Anytime you see the word righteous or righteousness, it includes this combined concept of both righteousness and justice together. And this is important because it shows us that God's righteousness is a bit more complex than our modern-day English interprets it as. But we need to try to understand it and grasp the weight of it to really understand what's being communicated here. One place that's good to look at is how Moses describes it. Um, Here, Moses is expanding on God's righteousness. This is Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. He's saying the rock, which is an awesome nickname for God, right? He was the original rock. The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. What's being communicated about God in his righteousness is that he always does perfectly what is right and what is just. Like It is impossible for him to do wrong or to be unjust. And God doesn't and never slips up, not, not even for like a nanosecond in all of eternity. And so you're not going to dig up this moment in God's past or some sort of obscure verse in scripture as evidence of him doing something other than perfectly right. Like, we can't cancel God. His righteousness is in some ways completely unfathomable for us today. Because in our experience with other humans, everyone is flawed. Everyone has sin. Everyone slips up and fails and acts unrighteously. And for some of us, you wouldn't even have to dig very deep or look back that far to find something that we've said, something that we did, or something that we've endorsed that was a little suspect. And something that wasn't perfectly right or perfectly justifiable. See, this is not the case with God. He is wholly righteous. And in the words of Moses, the work that he does is perfect. And all of his ways are justice, which means that he's so just 
The just is not an adjective for God. What God does is the very definition of justice. God is faithful, meaning that he always was, and he always is, and he always will be, without iniquity or wrongdoing, for all time, just and upright. See, for those of us who are in family groups right now, you're reading through the book called Gentle and Lowly, and it's a fantastic book. We have a bunch of extra free copies in the back, so if you don't have one, make sure you get one on the way out. I want to, I want to encourage you to do that. But the book, in short, looks at who God is. It breaks down different characteristics and traits of God. And as we're reading these together about, and these attributes and learning more about God, like some of them are really blowing our minds. And partly because a lot of the ways that God has revealed himself to us are, are not just naturally intuitive, and I'll talk about that in a second, but also they blow our minds because they're so far from our experience with humans. The author, Dane Ortland, he puts it like this. He says, this is why we need the Bible. Our natural intuition can only give us a God like us. The God revealed in Scripture deconstructs our intuitive predilections and startles us. And Mercy House, if you want to know God, you got to read your Bible. And I would argue that the majority of things, perhaps all things that we can learn about God, are not intuitive. The meaning, we cannot merely sit in a room or go on a walk and just use our powers of pondering purely to learn something new about God. I'm not saying that you can't pray to God. I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit can't speak to you in dreams and give you visions. But the primary means by which God has made it possible for us to know him is through his word, through the Bible. Paul harps on this to Timothy, his disciple, in a letter written to Timothy. And this is in 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. And that's the Bible, right? So that's what he's referring to when he says sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Guys, read your Bibles. I don't encourage you to do that because it's like the right thing to do as a Christian. I'm not telling you that you need to read your Bible or else you're going to lose your salvation uh, as if salvation was something done by or achieved or accomplished by, by, by work and, and not faith alone. But know that as long as you're a part of this church, we will always encourage you to read your Bibles and to read it regularly so you can know God, so you can be made wise for salvation, so you can be taught, reproved, corrected, and trained, and thereby being equipped making you whole and complete. And now this is a bit of a digression, but here's why it's important. See, as you read the Bible, what we do is we learn about who God is. And as we learn about who God is, that equips us for life. And specifically here in this psalm, there's a reason why the psalmist points at God's righteousness, his, his perfect good, uh, uh, consistently right and just nature, right after he leads them in a reflection and acknowledgement of our affliction and suffering. I mean, think about it. At this point, he could have written about any of God's attributes. He could have said, the Lord is merciful, which is true. He could have said, the Lord is loving, which is also true. Maybe compassionate or powerful or wise, but he doesn't. 
He says, in light of the affliction and the suffering that Israel has experienced since its youth, in light of the fact that they have never been prevailed against, the Lord is righteous. The reason why we can know with confidence that the afflictions and the sufferings that God has allowed us to experience are used for our good is because the Lord is righteous. If God was indifferent and he allowed his children to suffer for no good reason, that would not be righteous. If God was allowing his children to suffer for his own weird pleasure, he wouldn't be upright without iniquity. He'd be sadistic. Knowing that God is righteous allows us to have grit and confidence in the face of affliction and suffering because we can trust in his goodness and him acting rightly toward us no matter how painful or how deep our afflictions and our suffering are. C.J. Mahaney, an author and a pastor, he says, in your darkest moments, you need your deepest theology. In your darkest moments, you need your deepest theology. And not in, in your darkest moments, you need your closest friends. And not in the darkest moments, you need your best optimism and positivity. In your darkest moments, we need to cling to what we know to be true and right about God. And the people of Israel knew this fact, and they demonstrated here with this psalm as they reflect on their history of suffering and likely experiencing suffering in that present moment, they clung to the one truth that would be able to give them confidence and grit and resolve to persevere with endurance that the Lord is righteous. And in his sovereign stewardship of his people, he will act righteously and will not compromise on his righteousness. Some of us need this bit of theology this morning. If you're suffering and if you are afflicted, I want you to know that this passage and my sermon are not meant to take lightly what you are enduring. I also want to say that a part of suffering and experiencing um, hardships and, and, and pain involves processing it, it through grieving and through lamenting it. And so I'm by no means trying to discount this component of it, but the emphasis of this text and this sermon are not on the processing of suffering, but on the mindset and the perspective that we are to have in our suffering. And so I don't know exactly what you're going through this morning or what your suffering might look like, but I know, I know that there are people in this room who've experienced great affliction and who are currently suffering greatly. And maybe your suffering this morning is due to circumstances, and circumstances that are outside of your control, circumstances that are far from favorable, that cause you stress and anxiety, and maybe your circumstances make it so you can't sleep at night. Maybe your circumstances make it so you don't want to wake up in the morning, and your circumstances might be causing you to feel apathetic, maybe sad, maybe lonely, angry, depressed, Maybe you're frustrated. Maybe you just have a sense of dread, sense of being completely overwhelmed. Or maybe you're being afflicted in relationships with other people. Or maybe other people are treating you with contempt and causing you to question your worth and your value. Or maybe people are making you feel useless and stupid or foolish. Maybe people around you are letting you down. Or maybe you're letting other people down. Maybe people are just being mean toward you and hurting your feelings. When people are misunderstanding you, maybe you're feeling unheard or unloved. 
And maybe you're dealing with death and loss from someone that you love. Maybe your suffering is in the flesh. And in your flesh, you're struggling with doubt and with lies. Maybe your affliction is physical and you're struggling and suffering under chronic pain and illness. And maybe that affliction is with your mind. Maybe you're suffering in a season of deep depression or crippling anxiety or some other form of mental health. Maybe your main place of affliction is struggling with nagging sin in your life and feeling like you're just out of control, you're unable to change, unable to be transformed, that you'll never experience freedom from your sin. Maybe it's another form of suffering altogether. Maybe your persecution, your affliction wasn't mentioned, but that doesn't make it any less real. Whatever you experience, your experience of suffering looks like, whatever form it takes, wherever it originates, the worst part of suffering is that it's it's not that it's just uncomfortable or that it's unpleasant. It's when in our suffering we lose heart and we believe that our suffering will never end, that we're alone in our suffering, and that our afflictions will ultimately overcome us. That's the pain and the power that suffering has over us. See, no one goes to the hospital to get a shot, and they would seriously say that they experienced suffering and affliction when they got their flu shot. It's uncomfortable, but you get your shot and you go home. It's over. There's no uncertainty. Like you're, you're arguably better off afterward. But my neighbor who has stage two pancreatic cancer, who goes three times a week to the hospital, spent four hours pumping poison into her veins to try to eradicate this disease from her body, which leaves her without hair, without energy, and feeling sick to her stomach. Like that is suffering. Because what she's suffering from is potentially endless. Like, there's no promise that this chemo will get rid of her cancer. And there's a very real possibility that the affliction will overcome her and kill her. And as much as her family can physically be by her side in it, like, it is completely normal for her to feel alone in what she is suffering because she's the one who's sick, not them. They don't truly know her pain. They don't know the fear that she's experiencing as she's trying to sleep at night. She feels alone in that suffering. See, the true pain of suffering comes when we feel like it will never stop, that we are absolutely alone in it, and that it will overcome us. And this is when our suffering and our affliction have the greatest power over us. And this is when Satan accomplishes his goal in throwing everything that he has at us. But what you need to hear this morning is you need to hear the words of God, our righteous and loving Father, and what he says to us. Look at Isaiah chapter 43 starting in verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Mercy House, we're not staying dry in this lifetime. There will be water. There will be storms and rivers and flames and fire. There's no promise of comfort or ease in this life. Quite the opposite, actually, as we're reading this verse. You will suffer. You will experience hardship. 
You will experience persecution and affliction. You will experience contempt from other people. You will suffer great loss and heartbreak. You will weep bitter tears. You will experience despair. You will have sleepless nights and experience excruciating pain. And if you don't personally experience any of these, you will watch as others around you do. But God's promise is, even as you go through the storms and the rivers, you will not be overwhelmed. Even as you feel the scorching heat of fire and flames in your life, God's promise to his people is that you will not be consumed by them. And the best part is that God cuts to the heart of whatever affliction that we suffer by promising us, because we are his, that he will be with us in all of it. That he'll never leave us or forsake us in that pain or in our suffering. Well, how do we know that? Look at verse 3 in that passage, passage we just read in Isaiah 43. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. So Mercy House, there's something far scarier uh, than suffering under the contempt of others or the pain and the suffering that comes with cancer. And God is not identifying him, himself as a savior to merely relieve us of our worldly discomforts. The underlying problem is not our circumstances or others around us or even our flesh. The root problem is sin and sin that destroys and sin that condemns, sin that leads to an eternal death. Like that is what we need a savior for. And the suffering and the afflictions of this world, they pale in comparison to the eternal suffering and the afflictions of being cast out of the presence of God because of our sin. The power that suffering and affliction have over us are not unfounded. In our suffering and our affliction under the power of sin in our lives and the eternal punishment that that brings upon us, like that affliction will never end. Our sin will overcome us and consume us. The fire will burn us, and we will experience the most terrifying loneliness and isolation imaginable as we are eternally separated from the presence of our Father. God, have mercy. And God does have mercy. A Savior is promised, and a Savior has come. So hear the prophetic declaration of, of, of of what Jesus would do one day in verse four in the psalm that we're looking at this morning. Verse four, the Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. The cords that have bound us in our sin, the chains that have held us captive as condemned sinners has been cut. Mercy us, if you are a Christian, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, Satan and sin has no power over you. You are free from the ultimate form of suffering and affliction. And these promises of forever fellowship and having constant, uh, the constant presence of the Lord in your life ought to give you incredible peace and incredible comfort no matter what you're going through right now. We know that the waters won't overwhelm us and that the fire won't burn us because this is the result of our eternal salvation in Christ. So as we respond by faith in Jesus, we are eternally protected and guarded as children of God. This is the good news of the gospel. It's what it means to be a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, you are invited into this. You're offered salvation from your sin to have the cords cut and for you to experience eternal protection in the presence of God. In order to have true confidence and true grit 
in the face of any affliction, we must first experience the rescue from the greatest affliction. And once we experience this rescue, it becomes the ultimate reference point for understanding God's goodness and His protection over us. So we can ask ourselves and kind of walk ourselves through this and think, oh, God rescued me from the eternal fires of hell? Like, I think I can put out some fires in my life and, and survive them. Oh, oh God has, has silenced the lies of Satan, the accuser? I, I think I can handle some people being mean to me. Oh, God will give me eternal life with him in paradise with no end to my joy and my delight? Man, this cancer might just be fast-tracking me to my Savior. Like, to die is gain. And this confidence is not just for us. It's the ultimate hope that we can bring to those who suffer and are afflicted. And not promises of circumstances turning around or, or, or simply offering some breathing techniques for them as they endure great suffering, but an eternal hope of cosmic rescue in our greatest affliction. The gospel brings a hope and a comfort that nothing else in this world can. So Mercy House, if you are suffering this morning, I, I want you to hear and I want you to know that if you put your faith in Christ, your suffering will not last forever, whatever you're going through right now. There will come a time when all things will be made right, where you will experience peace and ultimate restoration and complete justice from our righteous God. If, if you have experienced God's salvation in your life, your afflictions will not be the end of you. They will not get the best of you. And don't believe this lie. This is what Satan wants to use uh, in your suffering, in your affliction. Like He wants to crush your spirit. He wants to steal your joy. He wants to fill you with doubt and despair in the ways that he's afflicted you in, the, in, the, in your experience of suffering. But God can use any of that for your good, and he will. Remember what Paul says in Romans 5.3. We read this earlier, that we can rejoice in our suffering because in Christ they are productive for our good. So if your faith and trust is in Jesus and, and, and you just don't have to be afraid of discomfort and hardship, we can embrace it with confidence and not be afraid. To lean in, to press in and look at God who promises to be with us and in it and to use it for our good. So here's where we'll end this morning. There was a cost to cutting the cords which bound us up in our sin. Remember that God is righteous, meaning that he is also just. And it would not be just for God to sweep our sins under the rug or to look the other way. The wages of sin is death. And so for God to be truly righteous and truly just, it would actually mean him allowing us to experience that sentence of death and allowing us to suffer that punishment for all of eternity. That's what righteous is. But Jesus, as promised in Isaiah, has come to rescue us and to be our Savior. As we take communion, we remember that Christ has paid that debt on our behalf by suffering the affliction and the persecution that we deserve and thus satisfying the justice, uh, the, the just and, and righteous wrath of our God and our Father. And when we hear what God, when we hear that God will be with us in our suffering, that he'll never leave us or forsake us, we need to know that Jesus has known the greatest suffering and the greatest affliction imaginable as he endured the most excru excruciating affliction, which is the wrath of the Father. Jesus is able to sympathize with you. 
matter where you're at, no matter how you've been experiencing suffering and affliction in your life, Mercy House, Jesus is with you in your suffering. And so through faith in Jesus and what he has done for us on the cross, we are brought into the family of God, into this great legacy of suffering which Israel experienced and which Christ has completed. And we live under the perfect, righteous, persevering protection of God, our fire. The water and fire will come. We will not be overwhelmed and we will not be consumed. Let's pray. God, you are good. You are righteous. You are just. You are merciful. And you are loving. God, we confess that in our own pain and suffering, and in the pain and suffering we see in this world, we often don't understand how it can fit into these truths about who you are. But God, we trust that it does. And as we see the truth of your word communicating these things to us, God, we have hope and we have peace knowing that no matter what we go through, you are with us. And that you comfort us. And you comfort us from a place of knowing great affliction and great suffering yourself. God, I pray for those this morning who are suffering, who are in pain, who are afflicted. Would they experience the supernatural comfort of your presence, God? I pray for those who don't know you and who are suffering under the greatest affliction imaginable. And pray that they would receive you by faith and experience for the first time peace and comfort in knowing that their eternal affliction has been assuaged. God, we need you and we love you. We're thankful for this opportunity to worship you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.